Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our Easter uh, celebration morning. I want to begin by firstly two apologies. I have a bit of a head cold and sinusy something or other going on today, so uh, unfortunately we're dialing the nasal up to, to max. Um, secondly, uh, when I was asked to speak, uh, Dad texted and asked, um, you know, roughly how long I was planning to be. And I said, I think it's normally about 10, 10 minutes or so uh, at, at these kind of mornings. And I was advised, aim for 20. That would be better. So the one thing you don't do with a McElrath is give them more time to speak. Uh, but I figured if ever there was a day where you would uh, cut a little bit of slack and give a little extra grace to talk about Jesus, surely it's Easter Sunday. So uh, come along for the ride. What an amazing thing it is to know that because of what Jesus has achieved, we are freely forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of God. All of our sin is paid for in full, and an immeasurable weight of righteousness has been credited to our accounts the very second that we place our trust in him and that finished work that we've been thinking about this morning. But... I am very aware that there are many individuals, and indeed many Christian churches today, that don't believe in this completed, all-sufficient work of Jesus that we have been singing about and celebrating this morning. Within Christendom, we have the Catholic Church at large, which teaches that Christ died to cleanse us from original sin, that is the sin that we're born with, but it's through belonging to the church baptism, observation of the sacraments, acts of contrition or good works, and at the end of the day, a stay in purgatory that ultimately salvation is accomplished. Or within the Protestant tradition, how many churches have traded the gospel for something along the lines of, be a good person, give to charity, don't do anybody any harm, and you'll probably be all right. And as we look outside of Christendom to the other major world faiths, we see Islam and its five pillars, Buddhism and its adherence to the teachings and practices of the Buddha, Judaism, which is observation of the Mosaic law and the rabbinical traditions. In essence, everywhere we look, every other major world religion says the same thing. Nobody's gonna do it for you, so get out there, work hard, and do it for yourself. You've gotta earn it. People who share these beliefs look at Christianity and what we come here this morning to celebrate with utter disbelief. That's just not how the world works. If you want something, you have to go and work hard for it. How much more so when it comes to the approval of God himself? But I want to tell you this morning that we're not all mad. This is precisely the point. God doesn't work how the world works. In fact, he works the complete opposite way to how this broken and sinful world works. Because the truth is, there is no working hard enough to fix our relationship with God. It's broken and we're broken beyond repair. And what's more, God tells us in the book of Isaiah that even the good things that we want to do, the things that we try and do to win his favour, are like soiled rags that we pile up before him. But the good news and the reason we come here to celebrate this morning is that we don't have to fix our own relationship with God. We've already reflected on it much this morning. He has done it all for us. And all we have to do is take him at his word that when he said on that cross, it is finished, that he meant it. That's just too easy. I hear you object. 
Surely I have to do something. But, and I urge you to go with me this morning, I'll be 15 minutes. This belief that we still have something to contribute stems from two critical misunderstandings. Firstly, it is a major misunderstanding of the depth of Christ's sacrifice. And it is a serious misunderstanding of the worth of the one who offered it. What do I mean when I say that it's a misunderstanding of the worth or the depth of Christ's sacrifice? Well, in essence, if you feel that there's something left to do for you to win God's favour, then it's just a logical following through to a conclusion that what you're saying is that what Christ has already done isn't enough. That there is some sin of yours or someone else's or the world at large that he either could not or did not pay for on that cross. And these unpaid sins therefore require your own efforts to make up for what he failed to achieve on his own. But nothing could be further from the truth. Luke chapter 23 records for us, and Patrick uh, reflected on it in his prayer, that as Jesus hung on that tree, darkness came over the whole land for three hours. The depth of this can be easily lost to our 21st century minds, but to a first century Jew, they knew that firstly, anyone who hung on a tree was under God's curse. Deuteronomy 9 lays that out for us. And darkness was frequently used in the Old Testament to describe and to illustrate God's judgment. Consider Jesus' own words as he talks to the people about hell, that place of God's judgment. He describes it as outer darkness. As Jesus, the holy and perfect Son of God, hangs naked on a tree, (coughs) suffering immense physical and emotional pain, there is something infinitely more terrible going on behind the scenes. Jesus is passing into and under the full judgment of God for human sin. God the Father holds nothing back. And we are told by Peter that Jesus became the very embodiment of sin upon which God would spend his entire wrath and fury. There has never been suffering like this in the history of the world and there never will be again. The perfect Son of God who had never sinned and who hates sin with every fiber of his being, became sin for us. He took the sins of the entire human race, past, present and future, upon himself and bore it as his own. He stands before the Father, the Father who loves him more than we can begin to comprehend, with a perfect eternal love. And that relationship, the relationship that is the foundation of all relationships, is broken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eternity will not be long enough to appreciate that cry of anguish and the pain that both the father and son experienced in that unique moment in history. I had planned to read through Luke's gospel account of the crucifixion and the the preceding events, and I would strongly encourage you to do this and actually to read through all of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion and the events that lead up to it, because it gives us such a full picture of what happened that day. And what I want you to do as you read it is I want to challenge you to consider, as Jesus is firstly betrayed by his closest friend, was it too easy then? Or as you move to his arrest in the garden, As his other friends, many of whom had sworn ultimate loyalty to him, even in the face of death, 
flee, leaving him to the bloodthirsty mob? Was it too easy then? Or as we come to the kangaroo court before the high priest, as his beard is ripped from his cheeks and spit runs down his battered and bleeding face, was it too easy then? Follow him as he has passed to the card pilot, who first tries to pass the buck to Herod, but he simply mocks him and sends him back. Then Pilate hands him over to his soldiers to have their fun. And Mark's gospel records that they dress him in a mock robe and beat a crown of thorns into his head. Was it too easy then? As a final insult from the Jewish religious leaders, they trade their king for a murderer. Give us Barabbas. We want this vicious killer over the one who healed the sick, fed the hungry, and gave dignity to the outcast. Was it too easy then? Walk with him and stop for a moment as his knees buckle beneath the weight of his own cross, as he is led to the place of his execution. It's just too easy, isn't it? Stand with his disciples and his mother and watch as they hammer railway spikes through his hands and feet, as they hoist him up to hang naked before the crowd, slowly suffocating beneath his own weight, so disfigured by the beatings that he has received that he no longer even looks human. Watch as he cries in anguish, dragging his shredded back up splintered wood, just trying to get another breath. Feel the hairs on your arms and your neck stand on end as the sun ceases to give light in the middle of the day and things go deathly silent. Hear his agonized cry, break that silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ponder for just a second the judgment of God falling on the one who has done no wrong and who always upheld his law. Consider the Father landing blow after blow of righteous judgment upon the eternal focus of his infinite affection. Finally, we hear the words of the one who gave life to so many speak for a final time. It is finished, as he commits his spirit to the Father and dies a death that he did not deserve. It's all just a bit too easy, isn't it? I suspect that any understanding at all of the depth of the sacrifice that was paid by both Son and Father on the cross would tell us that it is absolutely enough. To think that you can or should add anything to the work of Christ is either arrogance, ignorance, or both. And one further thing that this idea fails to take into account is the glorious fact that God himself has shown publicly and conclusively that the work is finished and salvation has been won for us. How did he do this? Well, what is it that we're celebrating this morning? Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead as a proof that his work was completed. Sin has been paid in full, and consequently, death now has no means of holding on to Jesus. If Jesus had remained in the grave, then we would have a great cause for concern and worry. Had it been enough, how could we know? As the Apostle Paul put it, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain, and we are still in our sin, and of all people, most to be pitied. But Jesus did rise from the dead, and he appeared to many hundreds of witnesses, as you'll have heard in the videos if you received them. 
over a period of 40 days before ascending to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, that seat of all authority and power. Do you want to know if Jesus' sacrifice was enough to pay your debt, and indeed the debt of the entire world? You only need to ask yourself one question. Where is he now? If the answer is he's in a grave in a hillside in Jerusalem, then his mission failed and you're still in your sin. Don't come that way for salvation. But if the answer is that he is risen and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, then there can be only one conclusion. God is fully satisfied in what he has accomplished and we can rest assured. Mission complete. It is finished. Okay, you say, perhaps I grant you that the sacrifice of Jesus was infinitely deeper than I could ever imagine. Does it really guarantee instant and eternal salvation for everyone who would believe in him? And what about the really, really, really bad people? You know, like your neighbor that, you know, (laughs) fell out with you one time. Can they really be forgiven too? And how can one person possibly pay the debt of so many with such absolute certainty for all of eternity. How can you know that the second you close your eyes in death, you will open them before God the Father and he will welcome you into heaven with open arms on the basis of what his son did 2,000 years ago? Well, I said earlier, it's not just a misunderstanding of the sacrifice itself, but it also stems from a misunderstanding of the worth of the one who was sacrificed. You see, Jesus was not just a good man, as some people want to teach, or even someone who, when God put out the call or the job description for a saviour, in a great act of heroism, stuck his hand up. That would never do. No mere human being, even the most noble example we could think of, could ever be a fitting sacrifice. Certainly not one that could achieve full reconciliation between God and man. It required one of an altogether different order. Jesus, the Son of God, become a man. Jesus was absolutely and fully a human being, and we must defend this fact to the death. But he was not only a man, for Jesus was also God incarnate. He was the God-man. The inner workings of divinity in human flesh is something that no mind can begin to comprehend, but nonetheless, it is the truth. And consequently, Jesus is uniquely qualified to act on both our behalf and that of God. He is the meeting place of the two parties. He is our high priest, capable of sympathizing with our weaknesses. And he is the son of God, equal to him in all things, and sharing his divine verdict on human sin. And it's at this point that I think it's wise to stop and really just ponder for a second That term that we use so loosely and so frequently uh, as Christians, that sometimes we almost lose its significance. Jesus is the Son of God. Naturally, we're talking about deity and matters of the Trinity here, and so the entire meaning of these terms is just not accessible to human reason. But there are some things that even with our limited capacity, we can understand. Firstly, Jesus, as the Son of God, shares the same divine essence as the Father. He is not less than the Father. This means that Jesus shares all the divine attributes of the Father. Namely, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, and infinitely glorious and worthy of praise. 
Just listen to how the writer to the Hebrews describes Jesus in chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the radiance or the outshining of the glory of God. Paul describes him in Colossians as the one for whom and by whom all things were made. The universe, this vast, mind-bending, inexplorable universe, an inexhaustible universe that we inhabit, was the creation of, it's sustained by, it's the property of, and the inheritance of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's who hung on that cross 2,000 years ago. Not just some carpenter from Galilee who got mixed up in a political movement or was in the wrong place at the wrong time when the Romans and the Jews needed a scapegoat. This was God incarnate who willingly put himself on that cross under his own judgment for lost and broken sinners like you and like me. And when God the Father looks at the obedience and the condescension of his son and the price that he paid to fix our relationship with him, he places a value so high on that sacrifice and on the work of Christ that it will never come close to being spent. Peter spells this out in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Compared to the blood of Christ, silver and gold, what, what are they? Perishable things. If you're not a Christian here today, it's my prayer for you that this Easter, you will come to see the depth of the sacrifice and the worth of the one who gave himself for you. How can it be that there is free and full forgiveness for you? Because he has paid it all. God spent his anger at sin. He has poured it all on Jesus Christ at the cross. He bore that separation from the Father so that you would never have to. And he was no ordinary man like you or me. He is the infinitely glorious and worthy Son of God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So don't dare say that Christianity is too easy. That is blasphemy of the highest order. It took the death of the Son of God to bring us life. And I hasten to add, he willingly paid that debt. The one of infinite value became sin, became everything that is detestable and disgusting about you and about me, so that we could become pure and holy like him. Why did he do it? Because he loves you. Because he knows that you can't do it yourself. Because he knows that you need him and because he wants you back. He wants you to stop chasing the wind, stop chasing things that you think will make you feel happy and safe and satisfied. That is found only and fully in him. He's made the way, he's finished the work, he's paid the debt. And now all he asks is that you accept the free gift that he has paid such a heavy price for. 
And what's more is that he has risen again as a final proof and vindication of the life that he offers. Christianity, and I certainly do not ask you to place your trust in the words of a dead saviour. What foolishness that would be. No. Jesus, the resurrected and living saviour, has conquered death once for all. And he asks that you come to him and receive the life that he won for you at a cost beyond measure. What a shame it would be if you left here this morning snubbing such a free gift. What a joy it would be to put down the heavy burden of trying to be good enough. Trying to get yourself right with God. Never knowing, never being sure. But rather to leave today knowing that you already are right with him. Because of faith in what he has done. And if you are a Christian here today, let me close by saying, remind yourself of the great and living Saviour who has lifted our burdens, the one who died our death but is alive today and who ever lives to intercede for us, who has given us the spirit of adoption and who invites us to come boldly to the Father, our Father, knowingly welcomed and embraced. When we hear people, even within Christendom, try and tempt us away with false teaching of a self-salvation, would we echo Peter's words? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.